0: Well, welcome uh, to church this morning. Uh, My name is Tim, as uh, James so eloquently introduced me. Uh, We are, if you're joining us for the first time, we are in the middle of a uh, four-week series called Finding Jesus. Uh, And what we're doing in this uh, series is we're talking about the how we know uh, what we know you know. Uh, We're talking about how we get to the destination of truth—not the actual truth that we believe, but how we get there, the journey to get there—or put it another way, the proofs of why we believe what we believe, or how we can have faith in what that what sorry how we can have faith in what we believe. And uh, so, the first week we looked at uh, not going to be a big surprise. We looked at the Bible, and uh, we said that uh, the Bible is not the central cog in the Christianity wheel. In fact, the Bible is actually a conduit to the center of our Christian faith, faith, which is Jesus, right? And the Bible actually should decentralize itself and lead us to Jesus. And then last week we looked at tradition and we said tradition is the witness of proven experience. And... uh so we said that tradition is not about the rituals, it's about the beliefs that are held and understood and passed on from generation to generation. And uh, so this week is the third week, and we are looking at our third proof, and it is experience. And uh, you, maybe you just picked up on the fact that I said last week tradition was the witness of proven experience, and now this week I'm saying it's experience is another proof. You're saying, well, aren't they kind of the same thing? Well, the difference that I want to draw here is that tradition is the collective uh, witness of experience. It's a generation saying, these are the truths that we have experienced in our community, in our generation. And we are passing these on to the next generation. When we talk about experience, what we're talking about is the personal experience that you have in the present, in the here and the now. And... Uh, So my question for you this morning is, have you ever had an experience that has changed the way you think? Have you ever had an experience that has let you down? Have you ever had an experience that was so much better than you could even imagine? Have you ever had an experience that changed your life? For some of us of a certain age, maybe it's uh, having kids Or having a family. There's something that changes when you have kids, right? You think you understand what loving a a little tyke is going to be about. Uh, And then there's that first night where they're screaming through the night. And you, I love you. Go to bed. (laughs) Right? Or there's something, it's like another dimension of love when you can look into someone's eyes and say, I love you, while you're covered in their vomit, right? Like that's another whole nother level of uh of love that you experience when you have kids right if there's something that in you changes or when you get married right there's something in you that changes that you experience this connection in a whole new way a whole you know a greater way right because we are then two becoming one have you ever had experience that uh you know or an experience where you you knew something to be true but then when you experienced it you were like, oh, I get it. <laughs> I, uh, this is not really any life-changing news, but I was, uh, last summer, uh, we were, I, sorry, I, went in, I got, was in an auction, not in, I wasn't in the auction, but I attended an auction. Uh, I attended an auction and uh, bid, and I won some uh, tickets to Marineland in Niagara Falls. And so we were gonna take the family down to, uh, to Marineland and uh, the, I think it was the night before I uh, was surfing Netflix and stumbled across the documentary Blackfish. Have, has anybody heard of the documentary Blackfish? If you haven't heard of it, Blackfish is a documentary that basically uh, is about SeaWorld and about the, the kind of the containment and capturing uh, and breeding of the orca whales at SeaWorld. And uh, it talks about all the atrocities that have happened to them and their deplorable conditions and how it's, it's I mean, it's a big kind of, there's a, there's a business behind it and that's dr- really driving it. And I'll be honest, I'm not one, like, Steph will be the first one to tell you, I am not like a, an activist by any means, right? Like, I am not an environmentalist. I am not any of those things. But when I saw that, I was like, whoa, that, like, there was something that I was like, that's, that's crazy. And then the next day, I went to Marineland and I'm standing in front of this tank watching these dolphins swim in like a five foot circle. And I'm like, yeah, that's not cool. <laughs> I mean, something's wrong here. And I'm watching the orca just doing circles and circles. And I'm like, okay, I get it, right? I, I, it's one thing to see it, it's one thing to hear it. And then you experience it and you're like, yeah, maybe not, right? There's something about experience that has an impact on our lives in a way that uh, not a lot of other things can. It changes us. It influences us. See, experience is a funny thing. It has the ability to both amaze us and disappoint us. It has the ability to solidify our beliefs or to change our beliefs. It has the ability to confront and confirm. Last week I uh, mentioned that the formation of our denomination is, uh, was through Mennonites that had an experience with the Methodist movement. And it radically changed them so much so that they couldn't stay in their former Mennonite communities. And they had to form new Mennonite communities. And they took that great title, really original, New Mennonites. And that's what they were called. But... Uh, they, they, that experience that they had was part of the Great Awakening. And the Great Awakening was a revival that was going on in North America. And it wasn't just through the Methodists, but the Methodists were a large part of that, of, a large part of the spread and organization of the, uh, the Great Awakening. And uh, the experience, uh, there's a guy named E.B. and Brenneman from our area, I think that's cool because I live on Brenneman Drive, you probably don't care, but uh, they went to, to Port Elgin, they were from this area, Kitchener-Waterloo, and they went to Port Elgin, and they experienced the Holy Spirit in such a way that it dramatically changed them, such a way that they couldn't continue on in the way that they had been living. In fact, this... Idea of encounter and experience is actually rooted in the formation of Methodism because that's actually the story of John Wesley. If you guys know who John Wesley, he's the founder of uh, of Methodism. He was actually an Anglican priest in England, and he came over to uh, America and he was on a missionary journey and he uh, was going around and and preaching and, and spreading and he was burnt out. He, got, he was burnt out. He was spent. He traveled back to England. Uh, and there he encountered a community of people called the Moravians. And I know I'm already... Stay with me, Brandon. I know I'm putting you to sleep already, those of you who aren't interested in the history. But for me, it's fun. So, <laughs> uh, He encountered a people called the Moravians. And the Moravians had this expression of life inside them that he found so contagious. And it actually, that experience with the Moravians changed him. And he came to understand that it was the Holy Spirit. In fact, he writes in his journal, in the evening I went very unwillingly. I hope that doesn't, you know, characterize your Coming to church this morning, very unwillingly. But in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. The passage Wesley is referring to is from Romans 8, and it says, His Spirit, God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, speaks and confirms in my spirit that I am a child of God. It imprints upon us in such a way that it drastically changes us. It gives us an assurance of faith that goes far beyond a measure of good ideas and good truths to have about Christianity. It's an experience that transforms us. The Holy Spirit became so real to him that in that experience, it dramatically changed not only his life but his ministry. He traveled back from England back to America. And in America, he traveled on horseback from town to town and preached outdoors. By all accounts, he was not the best speaker of the time. But the ministry of the Holy Spirit that accompanied him and his ministry radically changed lives. And it became known, he became a part of the Holy Spirit's movement, a revival that was going on, which is called the Great Awakening. And his legacy uh, continues on because the movement of the Methodists have continued to affect people and affect whole churches and whole church groups. Out of the movement of the Great Awakening came the Methodist Church, obviously by Wesley, but also came the Missionary Alliance Church, the Church of the Nazarene, the Church of God, Pentecostalism came out of the Great Awakening. And the good old EMCC, right? We all have that same roots in the movement and experience of the Holy Spirit. And so today, we have this kind of wrestling going on in our culture around experience. I'm not sure if you know it, but there is a kind of a divide and it's... Some sociolog sociolo- Yep. Some uh, sociologists uh, say it's typically around generational lines, but that's not always the case. It's not a hard and fast. But for most of us, you may aden- you will identify with one of probably two statements, and that statements are either the experience I have is my truth, or you have to prove it to know it. And those are typically the two camps. One represents the, this one over here the prove it to know it represents kind of what they have termed the modern era, right? The scientific era, the rational era where we have to prove it to know it. It's about the scientific method. Have any of you been in a science class lately? Maybe. Yeah. If you've been in a science class lately, what's the first thing you have to do? You have to form a hypothesis, right, which is my educated guess, and then I have to prove it. I have to either prove it true or prove it false, but I have to prove it. And it's only as good as the results that I can actually execute in the lab. I mean, that's high school science. I know that there's some, you know, there's some nuance, right, Wayne? But uh, that's high school science, right? You got to prove it. That's the idea. The other side of it is what people, ha- sociologists have termed postmodernism, and typically of a younger generation where truth is subjective. Your truth may not be the same as my truth because what's true for you may not be true for me. And we can hold two different truths at the same time. What they're saying is my experience is my truth. What I have experienced and believe, that is what's true. What you have, ex- have experienced and believe, that is your truth for you. And the problem is that both of these are ditches on the road. What we want to say is it's not about proving truth, it's not about subjective truth, but what it is about is that subjective experience proves truth. Subjective experience makes truth real. It gives us an assurance, unlike anything else we encounter. And it shouldn't surprise you that this idea of truth is uh, a pretty age-old question. And it kind of comes to fruition in our culture when we say, what's the goal? In fact, maybe you've heard this phrase, the ends justify the means. It doesn't matter how we get the results. The issue is the results. It doesn't matter what you believe. Sorry, it doesn't matter how you get to believing. It doesn't matter how you were trained or what techniques you use. What matters is the answer on the test. What matters is the truth I hold in my heart, in my mind, wherever we want to phrase it. What matters is the doctrine. What matters is the belief. And if we could just teach people the truths, then they would know the truths. The problem is that we are ignoring the means. We're ignoring how we get there. And in fact, I think this is an age-old problem that even the earliest people of God, the Israelites, dealt with. And so I'm going to ask you if you want to turn to Exodus 33. I'm hoping that it shouldn't be a surprise for you that even in the formation in Exodus, the formation of God's people, that God's people were wrestling with what is the goal of being a people of God. Shouldn't hopefully be a surprise to you that the Bible has something to say about what is the goal. And so, in Exodus 33, just to set up the passage, Exodus 33 is, I think, a a bit of an overlooked passage. It's snuggled right in between two very well-known passages. Right before it is uh, the story of the Israelites and the golden calf. And how they, they make a golden calf to worship, and Moses, Mo, sorry, Moses is up on the. I'll back up. Moses is up on the mountain, and he's getting the Ten Commandments, and he comes down the mountain to find the people of Israel, uh, led by Aaron. They have gathered up all the gold jewelry, and they've made a golden calf to worship. And Moses freaks out, throws the temple, or throws the temple, throws the uh, the commandments down. They shatter, they break. I mean, they're rock. They probably don't shatter. They break. Uh, and, uh, and it's crazy. They, they put a bunch of people to death as a result uh, to clean up uh, the mess that uh, has taken place. And then we find this passage, Exodus 33. And then right after Exodus three thirty three, we find that other famous passage where Moses says to God, Show me your face. And God reveals, says, I'm not going to show you my face, but I will hide you with my hand in a cove. And I will, as I go by, after I have gone by, you can peek your head out and look at my back. All obviously personifications of who God is. But look at my back. And Moses does that and comes down from the mountain then. And his face, the encounter with God is, has so radically changed him. His face is actually glowing. So much that he has to put a veil over it because the people of Israel are afraid of him. And so he has to hide his face so that they don't get afraid. Snuggled right in the middle of these two encounters, these two stories, is this passage that I think has a lot to say to us today as we talk about experience. As we talk about an encounter with the Holy Spirit that radically changes us. And this passage is again, we're coming off the end of Exodus thirty three, and they've or thirty two, sorry, and they've made this golden calf, and, and the Lord is upset with them. And the Lord said to Moses, Get going, you and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt. Go up to the land I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I told them I will give this land to your descendants. And I will send an angel before you to drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perzites, Hivites, Jebusites, whatever rights you want to put in there. Go up to this land that flows with milk and honey, but I will not travel among you, for you are a stubborn and rebellious people. If I did, I would surely destroy you along the way. It's a really uplifting passage, isn't it? But I think it has something in it that we need to see and we need to hear. And the first thing that we need to understand is that there's some grammatical shifts going on here that actually speak to a greater issue. It says, get going you and the people, and I will send an angel before you. Why is this so radical? The people. Because not that long ago, God spoke to Moses and said, I will bring your people out of Israel. I will lead them out of bondage. And what did he say? I am the Lord. I will free you from the oppression and will rescue you from slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. And here it is. I will claim you as my own people and I will be your God. I will claim you as my own people. My own. God took ownership and possession of them and said, this people, they are mine and I am their God. I will free them and I will go with them. And then after an encounter with... uh, at. Uh, the Mount of Sinai with the golden calf, he's no longer referring to them as my people. He's saying, get going you and the people that you brought up. He's saying it's not my people anymore. They're your people. And he said no longer... He says earlier, I will go with you. It will be my works. And then later on in verse 2, he's saying, and I will send an angel to drive out. God's saying, no longer am I going to go with you because you are no longer my people. I'm not going to go with you. I will send an angel to fulfill the promise that I have made. I've made a covenant with you. I made a covenant with Abraham that I will honor that I will deliver to you what is promised, but it will not be with me. It will be with an angel that I send ahead of you. See, on the surface, it doesn't seem all that radical. But when we recognize that God is saying something, God is actually saying there is a change in the trajectory of what's going to happen here. God's saying, listen, I am faithful and I will keep my promises, but I can't go with you anymore. I mean, think about that. In fact, if if you were to read Israel's history from that point forward, you would probably recognize that that is probably a good deal for the Israelites. Because what you will find later on is that the Israelites just like each and every one of us, have a really hard time fulfilling their end of the bargain. They have a really hard time living up to the law. In fact, they are often categorized and described as a stubborn people. They're often considered wayward, rebellious. In fact, what God is saying here, listen, I recognize that you will not be able to fulfill your part of the covenant, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to let you go. I will give to you what is promised, but I'm not going to go with you. And Moses has the guts. I don't know about you, sometimes, when I read Moses, my prayer life doesn't look like Moses' prayer life. The people are so you know, they're shaken with this news that they set up what... They have this thing called the, temp, uh, the tent of meeting that they set up outside of the city and Moses goes into it and then the cloud that God is in descends on it and Moses interacts with God. And so they set up the tent and Moses goes into the uh, tent and Moses says, Listen, I need to plead for something. He says... uh if you don't personally go with us, down in verse 15, sorry, I should say. Then Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me? On me and your people if you don't go with us? For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all other people on earth. And the Lord replied to Moses, I will indeed do what you have asked, for I look favorably on you, and I know you by name. Moses here is saying, listen, the promise is not good enough. The promise isn't good enough the promise of the of the land of milk and honey of the promised land is not what we are after if you need us if you will not go with us do not ask us to leave this place how many christians can we say honestly have this attitude can i honestly say it about myself Is this my attitude? See, because we are a people that love the promise. We love the promise. And there are promises. Do you know that? There are promises of salvation. God has promised things to you. He has promised to you of new life. He has a promise to you of eternal life. He has a promise to you of deliverance, of provision, of protection. There are promises that the Lord says when you you know identify with me when you become a part of my family there are promises for you but so many of us including myself at times are so bent on getting the promise that we don't take the attitude of Moses and say God it's not about the promise it's about the presence It's not about the things that I'm going to get from Christianity. It's about being in your presence. About having the Holy Spirit in me. Having an experience with the Holy Spirit where His Spirit presses on my spirit that radically changes me. But so many of us are running after the promises whether God is coming or not. See, because we love to fixate on the results, on the ends. And if we fixate on the results, then when good things happen, we assume then that God is in them. But that's not necessarily the case. I mean, think of, uh, like, look at ourselves. When I look at myself, at my own prayer life, you know, do my prayer requests come out of the heart of God's, you know his passion for the world, or am I just rattling off my laundry list of things that I'm looking for? I remember Tony Campolo tells a story of his son uh, when he was younger, getting ready for bed, and uh, he after he had his pajamas on and brushed his teeth and was all ready, he would walk down the stairs every night and stand on the bottom step and yell out to the rest of the family, "I'm going to bed now. Is there anything you would like from God?" We treat prayer like that sometimes. We treat God like that sometimes. I'm looking for the promises, but not the presence. I want what you have for me, but I don't really care about listening and hearing from you. Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, please don't make us leave this place. See, Moses recognized that Israel's only hope Was if God went with them. There was no point of being the nation of Israel without the presence of God amongst them, working in them. And so we have to ask ourselves this morning do we want the promises or the the presence? Put another way do we want the presence or the person? Every Christmas, right, you get to go to, hopefully, you get to go to some extended family. Maybe you get some presents while you're there. Get some cool stuff. We would all think it would be odd if we walked into our extended family, walked in and just grabbed all the presents under the tree. Okay, this one's for me, and this one's for me, and this one's for me. All right, see you guys later. Thanks. And just walked away. We would all think that was weird, right? (laughs) The idea is, We got to spend some time with them. We want to know who they are. The presents are great, but it's about the presence. We got to know who God is. We got to spend time and hear from Him. As I mentioned, we are caught between two ditches that either the experience is truth or it is not truth unless I experience it. For those in the Experiences Truth camp, the problem is is we live in a fallen world. And not everything we experience is as it should be. And the things that we experience, if we allow them to form our truths on their own, we will come away with a fallen world set of truths because the experience we have is fallen if you're on the other side and you're saying it's not truth unless you experience it well the problem is is that we cannot create theology based on a lack of experience we cannot create truths on a lack of experience just because I have not experienced it for myself does not mean it isn't true. When I read the Bible and I see the things that it talks about and I say, well, I haven't seen those in my life. I haven't experienced that. Therefore, they must not be true. They must not be for me. They must not be at this time. We can't form truths based on a lack of experience. We should not let our experience... Limit our truth. See, our claims as Christianity is unique in some ways. Unique in a lot of ways. But in particular, it's unique in the fact that we claim an experiential faith. The faith we have is not just a set of doctrines And I understand the concept of having the five spiritual laws and working through that stuff. But the reality is is that it has to penetrate us further than that because it's his spirit on my spirit. I don't think Paul could have written a more personal, relationship oriented terminology. It's his spirit, it's a person, his spirit on my spirit. It's a connection, a relational experience. What we believe, we must believe can actually happen. Take prayer for an example. As I said before, we don't just pray because it feels good. We don't just pray because we're going through some repetition of chance. We're not throwing out good vibes into the universe hoping that they will return to us. The very reality that we believe in prayer the very reality that we believe we can talk to someone and be heard means that we live an experiential faith. It means that there is someone on the other side listening. And whether we recognize it or not, the whole concept of prayer that we can speak and be heard, that conversation... Much like Moses and God, we recognize that our interactions with God will change our situation, can even change the mind of God. And I know for some of you, that is like, we cannot wrestle with that one. And that's a tough one for us. But again, God said, I'm not going with you. Moses said, you're not going with us, I'm not moving. And God said, okay, I'll go with you. There is a dialogue, an interaction that we have that goes beyond just throwing out words, repeating chants. We have an experiential faith. My prayer for us this morning is that we would be a church that could recognize that when we pray, we pray with expectancy. We pray with the belief that this matters, that this changes things. My, my hope for us as a congregation is that we would recognize that the personal experience that we have radically changes us. And that when we attempt to pass on to the next generation, to my kids, these truths, we are not passing on rote knowledge. We are passing on an experience of a relationship with the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ and the Father. That we would read our Bibles and recognize the things in there it says I too can experience it. John Wesley wrote in his Works of John Wesley, Volume 10, says, What Scripture promises I enjoy. What Scripture promises I enjoy. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. There are promises of Scripture. But they are brought to us through the presence. When we experience the presence and the encounter of the Holy Spirit, we will experience the promise of Scripture. What Scripture promises, I enjoy. My prayer for us this morning is, my prayer for myself this morning, and I hope that you will partner with me in praying this. My prayer this morning is that, Father, I know what the Bible says. I know what Scripture says. I have read it and I believe that it is true. Now, Father, help me to experience Help me to live it. Help me to know it by experience. And so I'm going to pray over us this morning as we end. That we would have a faith so vibrant through our experience of the truth that it would be captivating for all those who come into contact with us. Father, this morning, as we go from this place into a delicious potluck meal, first of all, bless the food. Bless those who have made it for us. And Father, this morning as we walk away from this sermon, Father, may we recognize that your Scripture contains more than just promises for us. Your Scripture provides a conduit, a channel towards meeting you personally. And Father, I pray that our, our, that our attitude this morning would be, I believe what the Bible says. Father, now Let me experience it. I don't think it was an accident that Jesus said, It's better for me to leave you because the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, is coming. Greater things you will do. Think about that. Greater things are promised to us through the experience and the presence of the Holy Spirit than even through Jesus in his earthly ministry. Jesus, we thank you that you died. That you died for our sins. That you paid the price. That you have opened the Holy of Holies, split the curtain, and your presence, your Holy Spirit rushed out and fell upon each one of your apostles and upon us this morning. May we have that radical transformation of experience where your Spirit encounters our spirit to say we are a child of God and what you have promised I can experience in your holy name amen Amen.